good intent doesn't necessarily equal good impact. And so one example that we give in the trafficking space is that many health professionals think if I see someone who's experiencing trafficking, I should call 911. It's a very natural instinct because it's such an overwhelming thing to see. You know, this person in front of you has experienced a lot of violence, but trafficking victims have told me that that could result in their arrest or deportation if it's the wrong law enforcement at the wrong time. And so the solution so many times to having that unintended negative impact, I've learned, is by listening to the voices of those you're really trying to help most and having them lead even what your focus is and then definitely the implementation, the how of the work that we do. This is the Visible Voices Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. In today's episode, we speak about rural health. Why? Well, it happens, listeners, that today is National Rural Health Day. Yes, each year, the National Organization of State Offices of Rural Health and its partners set aside the third Thursday of November to celebrate National Rural Health Day. My two guests both have expertise in rural health and in treatment of patients in rural environments. Eileen Barrett is an internal medicine physician and hospitalist. She serves as faculty at IHI, that's the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, and she's currently the chair of the Board of Regents of the American College of Physicians. My second guest is Dr. Hani Staklosa. Hani is an emergency medicine physician at the Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston. She's also the executive director of HEAL Trafficking. HEAL is an acronym which stands for Health, Education, Advocacy, and Linkage. So when we get to the episode, we're talking about rural health, health care, and how their training and their interests led them up to working in rural health environments. We are dropping today's episode on Thursday, November 16th, which happens to be National Rural Health Day. For each of you, I'd like you to sort of riff on what it means to you and your current practice. Hani, what does that mean to you? And then Eileen. Well, as you know, I'm an emergency physician who practices both in a rural and an urban setting. And then I work on human trafficking and kind of taking both of those hats that are often interrelated. I'm excited about National Rural Health Day because I think it's an opportunity for us to open rural health practitioners' eyes to human trafficking and the difference they can make. I'm looking forward to it for lots of different reasons. And as an internal medicine physician who has practiced in rural areas for all but seven years of my practice since finishing residency, what I'm looking forward to is the education that that can provide more broadly in the policy landscape, but then hopefully also in medical education about how rural health is not monolithic. There's a lot of opportunities for us to do better to provide care for people where they are in a way that is patient-centered. Those of us that take the Hippocratic Oath that decide to pursue medicine as a calling, as a profession, even for some people as a job, we walk humbly. And if we don't walk humbly, then it catches up to us. And honey, in your podcast conversations, you've spoken about unlearning every day and something I found particularly interesting called collision harms and trying to avoid assumptions. I'm wondering if you can speak more to this concept of collision harms. I have to say, thank you for amplifying the unlearning concept. I wish it was something that we all learned in medical school (laughs) Um, because we all start off where we are, whether it's our initial sort of schooling or 
for those of us in medicine, our medical school time with so much and so much of that is good. And then there's a lot that that we truly need to not just learn, but unlearn. And it, it's sort of a daily practice. I learn from a lot of different sources, from those who have experienced trafficking, those who have experienced forms of violence, and their truths have really helped me to unlearn in, in so many ways, shapes, and, and forms. And I think one of the things that as health professionals is hardest for us to swallow is that good intent doesn't necessarily equal good impact. And I think this is kind of what you're alluding to. And so one example that we give in the trafficking space is that many health professionals think, if I see someone who's experiencing trafficking, I should call 911. It's a very natural instinct because it's such an overwhelming thing to see. You know, this person in front of you has experienced a lot of violence, but trafficking victims have told me that that could result in their arrest or deportation if it's the wrong law enforcement at the wrong time. And so the solution so many times to having that unintended negative impact, I've learned, is by listening to the voices of those you're really trying to help most um, and having them lead even what your focus is. And then definitely the implementation, the how of the work that we do. Yeah. And riffing further on your conversations, what I've read, you really practice human-centered design. You have the end user or the person that's going to be the recipient of the care of the protocol of the workflow at the table designing with you. And it's probably accelerated the pace of success of productivity of HEAL. Eileen, where has human-centered design played a role in your e-learning that you just shared or in the rural health and how listeners may not even know how to approach rural health, rural health care and becoming a rural health provider? Yeah. So I think that maybe I would take the second part of your question first, which is that it may be a surprise to people who work in cities or in suburban areas, any non-rural area, where they're taking care of people who are traveling a great distance often to receive their subspecialty care or more advanced care. But it might surprise them to know that they may not want to be there, that they are away from their family, they're away from their support structures, they're often away from their culture and their like microculture and the microenvironment that feeds them every day. How I saw that panning out when I was in academia is one example, is that we would often take care of people who were transferred for a higher level of care who were coming from um, different tribal communities. And then they would arrive at the hospitals. And this is, of course, an inpatient example, but that they would arrive at the hospitals and there may not have been interpreters who spoke their language. There may not have been a cultural practitioner, like a traditional medicine practitioner who could be consulted. Their families may have been hours away. Um, they don't have a way to get home. They don't have a way to get their pajamas so they don't have to wear scrubs all day, right? They don't have maybe food that is at all similar to what they would have at home. So that that can be a real challenge for people to understand because a little bit of what I heard Hani talk about, like that idea that all of us, everybody thinks that they're the good guy. And of course, I'm using that colloquially. I don't mean to use a gendered term, but I think of that. And that was so striking to me when I was actually in, in, the, in the spirit of that, all of us can learn something from everyone in everywhere, right? That I actually saw that as part of a public art installation at the Philadelphia airport. And, um, and I took a photo of it because it really did remind me that everybody thinks that they are and everybody, you know, most of us really want to do the right thing and be the good guy. So it can come as a surprise to find out that when someone is coming from a rural area, the, the care that they receive may not be in the way that they want to receive it. And it may not be received with the good intent that we have. 
I'm Dr. Risa E. Lewis, dropping in to tell you about a book that Dr. Adair Landry and I wrote. It's called Microskills, Small Actions, Big Impact. It's a business self-help book being published in April of 2024 by HarperCollins. We believe every future goal, complicated task, and healthy habit can be broken down into simple, measurable, and tiny skills that you can practice and then excel by removing obstacles, overcoming assumptions, and maximizing your potential at work and in life. You can pre-order it now. Go to bookshop.org, amazon.com, or wherever you buy your books. I'm going to move us actually more deliberately into rural health. And so if listeners were to log into the website on National Rural Health Day, there's a bit of a publicity campaign and some really good numbers, some really good statistics. And I'm wondering how some of these resonate with you. But first, let me read uh, hashtag power of rural. Rural communities are wonderful places to live and work, which is why nearly 61 million people call them home. These small towns, farming communities, and frontier areas are places where neighbors know each other, listen to each other, respect each other, and work together to benefit the greater good. They are also some of the best places to start a business and test your entrepreneurial spirit. These communities are an economic engine that provides the rest of the country with a wealth of services and commodities. Eileen, has that been your experience? Oh, you know, I love when people share love for rural communities. I actually found myself, as you were describing those things, having all these different memories that were coming back to me about different ways that being in a rural area that people have just stepped up and stepped in to take care of each other, whether that is related to healthcare or not, right? There is a certain degree of, sometimes there can be a stronger sense of a social fabric. It's very heartening. And it can be a little bit surprising when you end up going then to a city to find out that there can be, sometimes you want to maybe be a little bit more anonymous, but sometimes actually you really don't. So that can be a real gift. Everything that you just described. Yeah. When I reached out to Hani, because she had been on my radar for a very long time, we're both emergency physicians, we trained at the same program, and we kind of have been in each other's orbits for a long time. And her focus of work, human trafficking, which to be clear, listeners, is not just sex trafficking, it's also labor trafficking. And we'll do a deeper dive into what we mean by human trafficking. But she was a little like, well, you know, it's rural health day, but we should make sure we bring in other aspects of rural health. And I was like 100% on board. And between the two of you, because of what I know your areas of interest and areas of advocacy are, when I think of rural health, I think of, again, lots of land, population that if you train in a city, if you stay in academic medical center, perhaps you don't have a lot of exposure and knowledge. However, I think of things such as dental hygiene and oral health. I think of food insecurity. I think of opioid epidemic. I think of trafficking. And I think of difficult access to healthcare. So that's a lot that I just sort of put out in a pile. But my point is that I think there's a Venn diagram overlap of many of these aspects of healthcare that we certainly see in all parts of the United States, but perhaps in a more obvious way uh, when it comes to rural practice. Hani, do you want to start? And then Eileen. Yeah. And I, I just sort of want to riff where Eileen took off and uh, reinforce that social fabric. So I grew up in rural Pennsylvania. Um, and I feel like this conversation is taking me somewhat full circle as I now have the opportunity to practice uh, sometimes in, in rural uh, Navajo nation. Then I have this intersecting world of working on trafficking. And I'd like to lead first with the resilience piece. So I will definitely talk about trafficking and risk for trafficking. But 
as I was reflecting and preparing for this conversation, I was reminded of a case of sheep herders who were being trafficked in Colorado, who were recognized as being exploited by their church community. So their traffickers kept them doing sheep herding all throughout the week, but they were allowed to take time off for church. And it was community members in that church that recognized something was wrong and helped to kind of signal for help, which was ultimately the way that those um, sheep herders were trafficked in a very rural, isolated community in Colorado were able to get the help they needed. And then I think about one of the things that is a resilience factor for kids that are runaway or homeless, having a supportive adult in their life is something that prevents them from being trafficked despite all the other parts of their life that would put them at risk for for trafficking. I see just in those two examples of how, yes, we'll talk about risk for trafficking in, in a little bit and what health professionals can do and also to recognize the immense resilience that exists in rural America to prevent trafficking. I can't help but just love those examples that you provided because it reminded me uh, even more about, say, for example, in a, a small town that I used to live in that there were really difficult issues with access to care. And so a group of physicians just decided we're going to create a community health center. And in that they provide um, Suboxone, they provide comprehensive family planning, they provide comprehensive reproductive care, patient-centered, person-centered, and really have um, transformed how people are able to access care in that area. And it was just a group of people who were able to do it and were able to get some support from the town council, from the county to get, be able to get some funds. So really um, th- this idea like that that social fabric is just gonna be so important and that their examples of the successes are so widespread, they just often don't make it to the headlines. The factors that you had described are often the things that people think of with rural healthcare, often not that say, for example, it is their People have their next door neighbors are looking out for them. People from their faith community are looking out for people who aren't even in this in the same religion, but it is their commitment to their community that there's a lot of different uh, forces. I think another thing that I'd be remiss in not mentioning is that also in a rural area, there just because of the number of people who are present, it's often a little bit easier to get engaged civically. Mm-hmm. Um, if one wanted to look at some of those um, like social drivers of health that have to do with like the political determinants of health. So that also presents a lot of opportunities that I think that people don't necessarily, they don't always think of when they think of rural areas. Yeah. I'd love you to save more for listeners that are trying to picture what a community health center looks like, the actual built environment, the structure, and what you would find, who you would find working there, going in and out. How does it work? I think that it's, um, there's not just one answer to that, because of course, there's going to be so much heterogeneity. So I'll speak to some of the ones that where I've also experienced care. Maybe I'll start with that there can be so much of that human-centered design. It doesn't mean that that necessarily will be the case, but that absolutely can be present. So say, for example, um, you heard Hani described about working at a a tribal hospital. Um, I have had the same experience where even architecturally how the building is built is that it faces east um, toward the sun, which a traditional um, home would also face east toward the sun to greet the sun in the morning. And so that, and that all of the design elements incorporate uh, traditional um, and appropriate cultural beliefs. So it can be things like that. It may not be the case. I mean, I described to you about this example that I knew of with a group of sort of just a couple of physicians who came together. Theirs actually was, I think it was initially in a strip mall, um, was the physical plant, right? But what it was, though, was that it's hiring people from the community to take care of people in the community and then having the ability to be inclusive to meet the better needs of the community because 
not only is it literally someone's grandmother, their grandfather, their grandson, their next door neighbor who they're taking care of, but it's also the people who are working there who are able to give some feedback. So one could have more flexibility to become more patient-centered, again, to meet the needs of the community. It doesn't mean that that's always going to be the case because rural America is not exempt from the corporatization and the, um, the really negative aspects of the sort of integration of healthcare across big systems. But because of the nature of sometimes the margins are different there on the financial margins, then, um, then there can be more opportunities to have a community-driven strategy. I want to circle back, Eileen, to you talked about Suboxone. And for listeners that aren't aware of Suboxone, Suboxone is specifically a treatment and aid for people that are opioid dependent and are trying to get off the dependent from, say, heroin or fentanyl or something like this. I'm wondering what your experience has been with the opioid epidemic in rural communities and uh, healthcare centers. And for readers also to level set that this is also a great option for people who have chronic pain for lots of different reasons that opioids um, are being used, including other prescription opioids, that it's going to be um, safer. And we do know that the use of either buprenorphine um, or methadone are associated with a mortality advantage, right? So with that in mind, um, this is something I'm really passionate about. And if I may go off a little bit on, um, on a research project that I was able to do was that, um, and because it's this intersection of rural health and substance use disorder treatment came up. And it was specifically that I worked someplace where I tried to get um, buprenorphine on the formulary and I didn't have success. At the time, this was before the opioid epidemic became what it became, certainly long before the drug supply was flooded with fentanyl, right? And I wasn't successful. And um, I honestly, I didn't push it. And then um, later on, my husband working at a different hospital didn't have access to it either. And it made me think, well, how common is it if I know of two hospitals that don't? So I worked with some learners where we contacted every hospital in the state. And we found out that just under half of hospitals didn't even have Suboxone on the formulary, which meant that if anybody was, certainly if for a new start, then you couldn't start it, right? Um, if someone came in and said, I'd like to get treatment for my opioid use disorder, right? But the other thing that, we, that wouldn't be possible there is to continue a medication that we know is life-saving for somebody who's already on it as an outpatient. So that was really surprising to me. What we ended up doing was we published it in the Journal of um, Addiction Medicine, and we published it with the map of the state, and we showed what were the counties that had an, um, an overdose death that was um, higher than the national average and look to see how often they're and, and placed on there the, the locations of the hospitals and whether those counties had access to Suboxone. What was really interesting, and I think this comes back to my previous comment about how in a rural area, you might have more opportunities for civic engagement for good, is that in this case, we were able to work with the board of pharmacy who then asked if they could have our, our data and our data didn't have to go through IRB because this was just, we just called and said, can we speak to the pharmacist? And to the pharmacist didn't get any personally identifying information, just asked, do you have this available? So we shared the information and they contacted all the other hospitals in the state and worked with them to get Suboxone added to their formulary and, and really in all but six. So it highlights the challenges, some of the challenges, which is that one urban or rural, one may not be able to, it's well-documented. We have challenges taking care of the people who have um, opioid use disorder or on chronic opioids and to provide what really is the best care and was known to be the best care. It also shows that these are some challenges that can be overcome yeah. um, and that we're able to do that. So I would say that it absolutely is a challenge to take care of people with substance use disorders in this unfettered mental health crisis that the country is experiencing, particularly in areas where it's difficult to get access to mental health care. And yet it does present ways that we can just look at the things that we're able to change and to take some pretty deliberate steps to work to change them. Yeah. 
Honey, you've mentioned uh, HEAL. And for listeners who aren't familiar, they'll go to the website. They can look at it in the show notes. HEAL stands for Health Education Advocacy and Linkage. We are an integrated network of over 4,000 survivors and multidisciplinary professionals in 50 countries dedicated to ending human trafficking and supporting its survivors from a health perspective. It's been a beautiful journey. It's now 10 years that we've been around. And, you know, what I find to be beautiful is working with those who've experienced trafficking and learning from them every day. Being an active member of that learning community, it's the folks in over 50 countries. It just allows us to learn so much, not only from what's happening here, but in low and middle income countries. And that bi-directional learning has been so powerful in the work that we do. A lot of what you shared on your conversations really moved me. And, you know, one case that I had when I was just out of training, I was working in a community hospital and a patient came in complaining of hand and wrist pain and was not undressed, did not really want to take off her shirt. And I could see there was bruising and it looked like there were fractures of one of her hands and wrists. And, you know, what are we always taught? We're always taught to examine patients and look at them head to toe and, you know, ask the patient to undress. And in her case, she didn't need to undress, but I asked if I could do an examination more than just what she wanted to show me. And I actually found bruises and bumps and areas of broken bone in other parts of her extremities and other parts of her body, black and blue, et cetera. And so I ended up widening my examination, talking to her on a few occasions. And I bring this up because you have talked about when taking care of patients in the emergency department or, you know, when you suspect that perhaps human trafficking is happening, how to approach, what can you do? And you started at the beginning of the episode saying about, don't just call the police. Like that might make things markedly worse, but you really emphasize starting with kindness, which of course resonates with the three of us as well as with the listeners. Also just thinking about it as planting a seed. I'm wondering if you can say more about the approach to patients when you are concerned, when you think something like trafficking is happening. Yeah. Again, this is part of my unlearning, right? I came out of my training as an emergency physician thinking that the way you screen for things is you go down a checklist and you ask them questions. Maybe you're typing, maybe you're making eye contact, maybe you're not. So that was my understanding coming out of my training. And I think that's where a lot of folks come from uh, when they think about asking about violence. Through my unlearning and learning from the literature from intimate partner violence, colleagues from Common Spirit Health and Pacific Survivor Center and HEAL created a tool that flips the script and is person-centered. It's really human-centered design. And it's called the PAIR tool privacy, educate, ask, respect, and respond. So the goal is not disclosure. The goal is, as you said, planting seeds. Because when you're trying to kind of force a disclosure or, you know, force someone that day to like kind of rescue them, you're actually mimicking the ways that they've been controlled by a perpetrator in their life. And the tool is not just for trafficking, it's for for all forms of violence. And I think as health professionals, it's it's not that we should be, you know, just kind of going rogue and asking whatever questions, but having a structured tool allows you to kind of customize to what you're seeing in that person in front of you. And, you know, in the case that you gave, Risa, I know uh, it's complicated nowadays with boarding situations, like finding that private room is 
actually really hard. A lot of our care is in the hallway, but finding some place, whether it's the radiology suite, whether it's, oh, let's go get a urine sample over here, especially if they're with somebody else. And just, you know, expressing that care and kindness and, you know, describing what you're seeing, describing what you're worried about with those injuries and saying that you have resources to help folks that might be hurt by someone in their relationships um, or in their workplace and letting them know that that's a safe place. They may not be ready that day. I get solace from hearing from survivors that those seeds that are planted ultimately do grow. It just may not be under your eyes or under your watch, right? So, you know, if I plant a seed today and then that's followed by 10 other caring individuals in their life that let them know it's safe to ask for help, that it may be a year from now that they're able to reach out for help, have that safety planning in place and be able to to get the care that they need. I'd like to ask each of you if people want to learn more about rural health, about human trafficking, about the opioid epidemic, where would you send them to look and learn more? Honey, why don't you take it first, then Eileen? I'd recommend looking on the HEAL website, HEAL Trafficking, H-E-A-L-T-R-A-F-F-I-C-K-I-N-G.org. We have a compendium of curated resources, including on this topic. So definitely check out our website and join our online community. It's free to join and, and also to ask questions that you're experiencing, encountering in practice. It's a beautiful community and a safe place to ask those kind of questions and get more resources. And Eileen, for people that really want to learn more about rural health, rural health care, and maybe they're considering making a move out to rural parts of our country. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of places to start. And I, I think um, sort of as an extension of what we've heard Hani talk about, which is the idea of start where people are, which is I think that we can learn so much from looking at like there's the Rural Health Association, there's other groups that one can look at. But the other thing that one can do is just look at the newspaper and the community that they're considering. So say, for example, if one wanted to consider thinking like, oh, I think that maybe sometime I would like to work in a tribal community, then really just start to subscribe to the local newspaper. And then you can just get a sense of what really matters to people and what are the issues broadly, what are the issues that affect people's lives and then therefore affect their health as well and that affect their health and therefore affect their lives broadly. So I think that those are some options to consider. Say if they're in training, they could consider doing, of course, rotations. They could consider even if they wanted to really knew that they wanted to go all in, but they were a little bit maybe concerned about the financial part of it. They could consider the National Health Service Corps. They could consider loan repayment programs. They can reach out that probably in their, in most states, I believe it's probably all of them do have a clinician recruitment and retention effort that would be able to tell them where there is need. And because people who work in rural areas, they generally, they want to be there, right? Any, any doctor can throw a dart at a map and, and get a job, right? But if you choose to work in a rural area, it's because you believe in the mission. And so I say that because then generally these, the organizations that are recruiting to fill positions in those areas, they want it to work out for you as well. So like, this is what you have to offer. This is what you would like to be able to do. How do those things look? You know, what are some options that are here so that we can look at that? I think the other thing to ask people is that probably when they're going to their professional society meetings, those people are already around you. And just, just look at their badges, go to those networking events, talk to people. Everybody knows somebody who decided to go to a different area than they trained, right? And most people will want to be some type of ambassador. 
for their rural area if they've worked in a rural area. And even if it's not specifically where they were, they can still talk about these are some things to consider and um, and maybe make recommendations for who you can speak with. And with the view that not all our listeners are doctors or doctors in training, you know, if people want to celebrate National Rural Health Day, what would be your wish for how listeners could celebrate? Hani, why don't you take it first, then Eileen? Well, it depends on whether you live in a rural community or outside of a rural community. I would say for those that live in a rural community, really think about this resilience question. Uh, How are the ways that you've noticed your community be resilient and use that time to reflect on that. I think there's a lot of bad news out there that folks can focus on. And I think this is a time for celebration of the resilience and strength of communities. I think if you live outside of of rural communities, I love that suggestion, Eileen, of like pick up a paper because you don't have to pick up, you can Google a paper for a local area that may just be just, you know, a 30 minute drive from an urban center and learn a little bit more about that community. If I can amplify also what you, I loved what you said about thinking about the resilience question. And I think that not unlike how we're talking about a human-centered design, you know, so often in medicine, we're talking about trauma-informed care, which is also about what happened to you. But I think that one of the things we should always do best to remember is also all of us are more than the things that have happened to us, right? And that includes, of course, our rural colleagues and that includes our rural patients. But to remember that it's also what's right about you. So I think that we should talk about those things, seek those things out, celebrate those things in the community. And I would challenge people who are outside of rural areas to recognize there are reasons why people chose to live in a rural area. It can start with curiosity, how we want to assume good intent in our interpersonal interactions, but we can assume that there is something good there. I went to a conference where I heard someone just say about making connections with patients and this stood this really um, resonated with me that he said how nice it was to ask the patients, oh, why, what do you like about living there? And that, since I went to that conference, I have asked people and people just come out with the best answers. And so I would ask my colleagues who live in urban areas who are taking care of people who are from rural areas just to ask, what do you like about being there? It might surprise you. The Risa Wrap Up. Special thanks to Eileen and to Hani for joining me in conversation. It was so great to be surrounded by such expertise and such experience with providing rural health care and living and working in rural health environments. Some key points that I'm going to read to you, audience, coming from that website on National Rural Health Day. Rural America is fueling an innovative rural health infrastructure. Rural America is a great place for mission-minded health professionals to provide individualized care. Rural America offers a beautiful and challenging landscape requiring unique approaches. Finally, the opioid epidemic, human trafficking, and other challenges with access to healthcare are real. When we think about rural healthcare, we're not just thinking about some of these challenging aspects to providing health. We're also thinking about the positives of community, community support, people helping people, and having a mission-driven approach to life where all of us have better health and better access to healthcare. That's all I have for you this week, audience. See you next time. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare, equity, and current trends. We are a production of the People's Media Network. Our team includes Dr. Giuliano DePorto and me, Dr. Risa E. Lewis. Please find me on social media at Risa E. Lewis and through the website, thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us. Share the podcast with a friend today. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, to be continued.